Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Yasmin Mohammed. Yasmin is a Canadian human rights activist. Uh, she is the founder of Free Hearts, Free Minds, an organization that provides psychological support for free thinkers living within Muslim-majority countries where there's state-sanctioned punishment for leaving Islam. She's also working with the Ayan Hirsi Ali Foundation as an advisor and as a member of the Center for Inquiry Speakers Bureau. She's also written a wonderful book, which uh, I've read, and I would recommend all of you read too. It's called Unveiled. So without further ado, Yasmin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kushal. So Yasmin, uh, before we get into the meat of the subject, so I want to continue what we were just talking about offline, that I did not know your book did not find a publisher, because I just went on Kindle, clicked on Unveiled, bought it and you know how it goes you don't look at whether there's a publisher or not but to my shock i, I actually saw you tweet a while ago and then you had retweeted it or co-tweeted it saying i didn't find a publisher a few weeks or a month or so ago and i was like damn she didn't find a publisher so what happened there yeah so um i think that uh, people are scared to touch this topic um the literary agent that I had was in the UK. So the most common response that she was getting was that people were, you know, they had the memory of Salman Rushdie was too fresh in their minds. So they were too scared to publish any books that were in any way criticizing the religion of Islam. So um, although I, I had the support of Sam Harris and he encouraged me to self-publish. And so I did. And luckily, you know, it's being translated now into Finnish and French and Spanish and Portuguese. And, you know, it's, I have a publisher in India now, Garuda Books. So it will be, um, you know, published in India soon. So there, you know, it, it's, it's successful. I'm, I'm grateful that, so many people want to read my book and so many people have positive things to say about it. But, you know, unfortunately the literary world, the publishing world are very timid and they don't want to publish anything that could be considered in any way um, controversial, which is really weird to say, because we're talking about books. That's what books are all about, critical thinking and pushing people outside of their box. Um, but uh, that's that's what the literary world has become these days, and, and it's quite unfortunate. I mean, even you, you talked about buying my book off of Amazon. Even Amazon would not allow me to advertise my book on their site because they said, we don't allow books. And they literally said to me, the quote was, we don't allow books that are too controversial to be uh, advertised. And, you know... You read the book. It's it's basically my life. Like I'm yeah. I'm I'm telling you my experience, and you're gonna tell me that my experience is too controversial. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not giving you like some intellectual diatribe. Like I'm telling you this is my life, and the response is, oh no, your life is too controversial. <laughs> it's not politically correct. Yeah, j just to put it on record, I've read your book and what the hell was so controversial about it? I mean, I don't get it. I've literally read it and and 
And if that is controversial, I don't get it. So, so let us look at it this way. Now, if there was, let's say, not uh, Yasmin Muhammad, some Judy or oh, let's yes. say oh. whatever, and she mm-hmm. would have written this story, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just the only thing that changes is the religion mm-hmm. and the skin color of the person, mm-hmm. right? There would be no controversy. Oh, my God. Suddenly, if you just change the name and the religion, the rest of the story stays stays the same. Exactly. I mean, I could tell you specific stories about specific women who have written books exactly like mine, just a memoir of their life, and the way that they are celebrated by their media, by their, you know, one woman was approached by Hollywood to, to buy the rights of her book to make a movie out of it before her book was even published. So they didn't even know if her book was going to be successful or not. But they're just so excited to see women from America or women leaving Christianity to speak out. They love to support them. But a woman leaving fundamentalism of another flavor, not Christianity, those women are ignored. So that includes... That includes me and women that are leaving the Hasidic Jewish community as well. They're not quite as um, maligned as women who leave Islam, but they're certainly not getting celebrated in the same way women who leave Christianity are, which is really unfair. Because if we're going to talk about, you know, celebrating womanhood, celebrating strength and bravery and diversity they love to talk about diversity all the time inclusion all the time but now all of a sudden we are diverse we want to be included and they're like no 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 you're too controversial yeah it's like you know uh diversity is good but some diversity is bad and and we don't know how to figure it out like i i never realized this uh myself until i I mean, we would have this experience in India. I mean, I'm being very honest. I think the West is only catching up to it in a very weird way. Because in India, anybody who follows Indian politics in a serious manner would... uh, Like, if you ask this to an Indian, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you just know what we feel now. And they'd be like, Mm -hmm. how? I was Mm -hmm. like, well, we have separate civil laws in our country. Which country has separate civil laws? India does. Where there, Muslim people have different civil laws, Hindus have different civil laws, Christians have different civil laws. So je- until recently, triple talaq was legal in India. Mm-hmm. You could just say talaq, talaq, talaq if you're yeah. marrying a, uh, you want to divorce a Muslim woman, and that's over. And even today in India, people don't realize nikah halala is still legal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. And and if you go around, everybody keeps talking about, oh, you know, oh, you know, India is a democracy. I was like. Democracies don't allow that. I thought mm. <laughs> democracies value human rights, but mm-hmm. yeah. And but it's it, so. Let us now, uh, because I don't want to make it all about your book. Because I I want to make it more more about the current controversy after the events in France and Austria too. But I can't let uh, you know. I can't have you on the podcast and not talk about the book, especially the part of your life uh, in the beginning where I mean, to be very honest, when I read it, I was literally shocked. I mean, first of all, I, I, I not say this to you on uh, offline, but I want to say this to you online that I actually admire your courage. You, you, people like you actually give me hope. They, and I mean this with all seriousness. That when, when I read what happened to you, what you've been through, and the first of all, I don't know how you were able to narrate it in the entire book itself, because to just to put these kinds of experiences in words. Because when I was reading it, and I was 
just my brain would tell me that she's writing all of this mm-hmm. and not only has i mean she went through this and she's writing about it so i mean what was the experience like just to pen it down like pen it down the whole book the whole experience um uh, the experience of writing the book you know was one of the most difficult things that i've ever done and to be honest after i finished writing it and everything that it put me through i felt like it wasn't even it wasn't worth it <laughs> like i felt like there's is there's nothing especially since i had so much trouble publishing it afterwards too i felt like i just almost killed myself you know if it wasn't for my husband honestly i wouldn't have survived writing that book it it um you know to be perfectly honest it put me in a very dark place things that i had never thought about or acknowledged even for so long that had just been buried away in my subconscious all of a sudden i was digging in and pulling them out on purpose you know so um it knocked me off my feet i i i was uh I was agoraphobic. I was suicidal. I was having panic attacks constantly. It was it was really bad. And um, you know, and then after it was all over, I felt like I went. I, at least if I do all of this, at least if something good comes out of it, you know, something positive comes out of this, then it will have, it will be worth it. But there was that time there where I couldn't even get it published. And I felt like I went through all of this for nothing. It's not going to even be able to get out in the world. It's not going to even be able to help anybody. It's not going to even serve. There was no purpose for me doing all this. And so I was, you know, I was already in a dark place anyway. So it was easy to just get darker. But um, again, Sam Harris really encouraged me to to self-publish and he really supported me so much in getting that done because I really didn't want to do it. And I was really just doing it. Him and my husband were both like pushing, pushing, pushing. And I was like, whatever. And I let them do the work because I just, I had no more energy and I was just so tired and I, I hated everything, but uh, they got the book out and I could not be more grateful at the, response. You know, I'm really, really grateful that people are reading it, that they're, that they're understanding the message that I'm trying to convey, that they are taking that message and that they're passing it along. You know, so many people turn, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, you, your hateful Islamic book or your, your book that hates Islam or whatever, your Islamophobic book, and it's like, have you even read it? Like they did, they don't even read it, but they just judge me right away. They judge the book right away. They make these assumptions. And I was, you know, I, I'm really heartened. I'm really grateful to see that a lot of people are being very, very supportive. And the people that are being hateful are luckily not able to, um, overpower all of the positive energy that this book has created. So I'm happy. Yeah. So one interesting aspect of your book that stood out to me was in the beginning, you talk about the whole, and, and honestly, I, I don't get it. Like I'm a disbeliever myself, but 
that I always say this whenever I talk to, you know, disbelievers from Muslim backgrounds, because our worldview is so different. And our experience and, and our and our just our reaction to the entire uh, you know disbelieving process is so different. Prayer, and mm-hmm. and this is because I read this in your book too. And uh, my Muslim friends in India have told me too, who are closeted disbelievers, they're not open about it. Uh, I mean, it's India, so most of them don't don't come out in the open, and they they tell share these stories with me. They're like prayer is trauma for them. Mm-hmm. Now, can you explain this idea? Because to be very honest, I might be a disbeliever. Hindu prayers are not trauma for me. Mm-hmm. I'd still sit I with my mom and I uh, and, and I do the Diwali because we're just about to you know celebrate Diwali in India. I'll sit with my mom and dad and we do the Diwali puja. But what's with Islam? What is this unique thing that? And you're not the only one because I've heard this so many times from uh, mm-hmm. from my friends that oh my God, prayer is so much trauma. Can you explain that? Yeah, it, I mean, even the word prayer is um, is not the right word. Like, it's it's worship, really. I think is what it is. It's uh, it, it's submission. So you know, I've been to churches and I've been to temples. You know, I've, it's a completely different vibe. It's a completely different energy. Prayer has a it has like a, a a quality of being almost comforting. It's not like that with the Islamic prayer. The Islamic prayer is duty. You know, you must do this five times a day. The first prayer is before the sun rises and the last prayer is after the sun sets. So your entire day is consumed around these five prayers that must be done on time. And when you're doing the prayer, you're not like having a quiet meditative um, opportunity to communicate with God or something like that. No, you, it's very prescribed. You have to say these very specific things. And there's a, there's a certain surah that has to be said in every single rakah. That means you have to say it like, uh, like four times every prayer sometimes. And um, it's all about the people who God has cursed and the people who God hates and you need to hate them too. So it's really just like cursing the Jews and the Christians and the polytheists. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a negative energy that is prescribed. You must say this every ayah, like multiple times per prayer. So there's nothing meditative and relaxing about it. It's, um, it's just like pledging your allegiance five times a day. Yes, I will do what you tell me to do, like kind of thing. And you're not thinking, you don't, you don't, you're not involved as an individual human being. You're involved as a soldier getting in line, you know, and, and doing as you're told. In fact, thinking about it is, 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 is dangerous, is against the rules. Like you will be, if you, if you use your mind, it's like, um, it's a negative thing. You're being told, oh, no, that's the devil whispering in your ear. You know, you have to just, just follow Surat al-Mustaqim. Just follow the long straight path. Just do what you're told without thinking. So prayer is like that. It's just submission. Like think of it almost like physically like a, think of like being whipped and you're all slaves. I mean, Muslims are called 
you're you slaves of Allah. That's how you are. That's what you call yourself, right? That's what the name Abdullah means. And so you are just kind of for five times a day, you have to pledge your allegiance and submit to Allah. And to be honest, it's not only inconvenient to have to do this five times a day, it's, it's tiring, it's exhausting. When you're a child that you know you have to be up before the sun rises and you have to stay up until the sun sets. I mean, I used to have to get up every single morning before the sun rises, pray, and then there's like a couple of hours, you know, before school. So you can't go back to bed. So we'd have to sit there and we'd just read, put on, like memorize more from this book. Like it, my entire childhood was just sleep deprivation, you know? And then because, you know, you lived in Canada, how long our days are in the summers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And think of that sometimes Ramadan was during that time. You can't eat from sunrise to sunset. Imagine a seven-year-old kid not eating for like 10 to 12 hours a day. It's fucking traumatizing. But you yeah. have to do this and you can't complain because if you complain, then that makes you a bad person. And so you're going to be judged by your family and yourself. You're going to have like this sense of like self-hate that you, that you cannot get in line like everybody else, you know, like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. But, see, this is the thing. And another aspect, I mean, I can, i never get this, this whole concept of hell. They, no. There is hellfire. Oh, if you don't do this, you're going to hell and your skin is going to burn and it's going to be like this. And it's going to be like, why would you put a little child through this? I, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. For me, growing up, religion was what? I have an exam. Uh, I'll go to God and say, when I was a believer, I'll be like, hey, man. I mean, or, you know, for, for us, man, woman, it doesn't matter. Everything is God, right? So it'd be like, mm -hmm. come on, help me out here. Uh, mm. Maybe I've not studied well enough in the exam. And that's how it is. You know, God is always like an outsourcing agent for most people that I've seen in my life. We outsource mm. our problems. It's like we've outsourced it. to At least for Hindu kids, I've seen that. It's like an outsourcing agent. The anchor that we outsource our problems to. But with Muslims, it's like, oh, my God, if I don't do this, my skin is going to get burnt and whatnot. What the hell? So is this like some kind of yeah. mental trauma? Oh, oh my God. Yes, it is. It's an, it's, it's an abusive relationship. Yes, you are taught from a young age to fear Allah. So I was always really surprised because, you know, in Canada, the most dominant religion is Christianity, but they're all about like loving God and God loves you. And I'm like, it's, it's so opposite growing up as a Muslim kid. It's very, it's very fear based. So you don't, you don't, you, you fear Allah, you do things because you're so scared that he's going to punish you in the grave. He's going to punish you on the day of judgment. He's going to punish you in hell. Like it's just this constant fear. And when you're, uh, when you're controlled by this fear at a very young age, even as an adult, even when I started to not believe in Islam anymore, I was so scared still. I was so consumed with this fear because it had been put in me at such a young age. And then that fear is also here in, in, in this world too, right? So we're not just, we're not just scared that Allah is going to punish us 
in the hereafter after we're dead. But it's like your family will punish you today, too, because in Islam, if a, if a child does not pray or read the Quran, then they're they should be hit. And you see that translated in all sorts of vicious ways. Um, but it's uh, it, it's it's like the way that you're supposed to raise your children in the same way that the Quran tells men, if you're if you fear that your wife is arrogant or disobedient, then beat her. So it's the same kind of thing. That's that's what you're instructed, how to control your wife and how to control your children is through beating them. So it's constant like fear, submission, like it, it's uh it, it, it's not from a place of love at all. It, it's from a place of fear. And um, it really does keep people in line. You know, it, that's why there are so many Muslims today is because they fear being executed. That's my entire uh, organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, is it supports people who have left Islam but are living in Muslim-majority countries. You know, we have some clients from India as well, even though it's not Muslim-majority it's Muslim enough that there are people living in fear there. And, um, you know, in some countries they could actually be executed by the government, by law enforcement, but in other countries they are being killed by their families, you know, in honor violence and in honor killings. And sometimes not even for leaving Islam. Sometimes it's just because you took off your hijab or sometimes because you, you know, you have a, a, Western boyfriend or girlfriend. So they'll have, you know, this, this fear-based control is in the dunya, like here in this world, constantly by your family, your society, your community, and also when you die as well <laughs> in the grave and on the day of judgment and for the rest of eternity, you'll be burning. Yeah, so I, I'll tell you a story. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to take the name of the, the gentleman who, whose story it is, but I remember over a cup of coffee, and uh, this guy is actually from a liberal Muslim family in India, but even he, have to he, do he this. told me the story. You say, liberal Muslim, yeah. you have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, 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 so we were just having coffee, and I was like, man, I don't get it. I So, you know, this is, I think, a year and a half ago or something where, you know, the podcast was just slowly getting recognized, and I was like, you know, man, I get these messages from Muslims now and they're like, please don't take my name. And, you know, I'm like you, I'm a disbeliever. And I wouldn't rarely get these messages from Hindus. And, and I, I asked him, I was like, what's with this? Uh, and he's like, well, I'll give you a story. And he used to wear earrings, right? So mm -hmm. he went to the mosque to pray. This guy is a believer, by the way. And he's like, so I would go and pray. And one day, a group of men from the mosque come to my doorstep and say, you're not allowed to wear earrings because the shaitan comes and sits inside your ear and says uh, something to you. First of all, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> so what, the earring is going to make it an uncomfortable seat for him? Like, first of all, <laughs> what the hell, earrings? And, and then I was like, then how did your father react? He's like, my father told them to buzz off, but he comes from a family that can take the pressure because they're politically connected. You know how it is in our countries. If you're not politically mm -hmm. connected, you cannot get away with many things. Mm -hmm. But what the hell? I mean, earrings? And, yeah. and I'll give you my experience. So 17 or 18, I clearly remember telling mom, mom, I don't believe in these things. Like, I don't believe Ram was an actual God. 
could be a historical figure. I don't know, but not an actual divine deity. And my mom just looked at me. Okay, just shut up and eat your breakfast. I don't care. And and it ended there. And then you know, I, I've spoken to so many ex-Muslims now. Like I spoke to Walid. Walid's a very good friend. This is Haris, and there's so many others. And you know, once I was telling Walid, I was like, "You guys have some sexy stories, man. I don't have anything." I was like, "My story is so boring." Mom just said, "Shut up. Go go eat your breakfast." But now, in hindsight, when I listen to all this, I was like, "I'm so lucky. I'm not yeah. born there." Sheer luck. I was born in a Hindu house. Yeah. It's pure luck. I, I, and before somebody says, I do not say Hinduism is perfect. Uh, if anybody knows me, I, I go after Hinduism as much as I can. But the point is that this is unique. There's something unique when it comes to Islam. This, this, this overarching narrative of every aspect of your life has to be controlled. Yeah. The way you pray, the way you eat, the what you wear. So with what you wear, now you've been and. And I have to say that that video of yours, I think it was a year or two ago, uh, uh, about the burqa, I think, or the niqab, where you took it out and you burnt it. I think it was in a dustbin somewhere. You burnt it. I think mm -hmm. that was such a powerful message. So, so kudos to you for doing that. But can you tell me what it is to? I, I don't know. I just call it a female Darth Vader costume. So uh, yeah. please, uh, that's all it is to me. But yeah. what what is the entire experience like? Like. Uh, I'm a textile fabric manufacturer, so so I can tell you what the burqa is made of, but I don't know what what it is to wear it. Yeah. But but what the hell? So what is this experience of the burqa and the niqab? Yeah, it's it's it is definitely a tool of control. So it is uh, the way I describe it is it's like a, a personal, it's like a private or a or a portable. It's a portable sensory deprivation chamber. So when you wear this, it, it inhibits all of your senses. So you cannot see properly, you cannot hear properly, you cannot speak properly, everything, everything is inhibited. And you are essentially no longer human. You're no longer interacting with the humans around you. So I also, describe it as being a ghost because you can see everybody, but they can't see you. And so you're just kind of, you feel so dehumanized because you're so separated from the rest of the world. Um, it, it's definitely a, a dehumanizing tool and it is forced on women because women are considered aura, which is like um, nakedness or a private part. So every part of the woman is considered a private part, even her voice. So women should neither be seen nor heard. We are to be covered up in a death shroud as if we are dead, but we're still breathing under there. Covered up in this death shroud and shut our mouth too. So literally we are treated as if we're dead. That's the only way that they will be okay with us in society is if we are akin to the dead. And so, you know, there, I actually saw this 
picture making the rounds on social media where it was like this advertisement, you know, quite often there's these Islamic advertisements that are giving nasiha or giving like uh, advice to the Muslim ummah. And it has a woman lying on a bed like she's dead and she's covered in a death shroud. And it says, you know, you either wear it when you're alive or you're gonna wear it when you're dead. So basically it's it's making women fear death and say, oh, if you don't wear this during while you're alive, you're, it's gonna be forced on you when you're dead anyway. And so you might as well make Allah happy and do it when you're living. So they know, <laughs> they know that they are treating us as if we are dead. You know, we can't be, we can't even speak as if we're alive. So it's, it's actually the most horrific thing that you can do to a human being. I really felt like my soul was rotting, rotting under that thing. And um, I was a shadow of a shadow of myself. In some ways, I, I look back to who I became at that time. And I wonder, you know, how did I survive it? You know, how did, how did I come back to being who I am? And I quite often think of when, because I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, and when J.K. Rowling was write about, writing about the Dementors, when she was creating the Dementors, which are these creatures that are all black and how they're nothing but sadness and they suck your soul and it's darkness. That to me really is the, the best descriptor. Obviously she wasn't thinking of the Niqab, but to me that's the, the most, um, that's the popular culture descriptor that I can give somebody who doesn't know what it's like to be forced into that Niqab. Here's the thing. Um... <laughs> something that has always bothered me again like i said i'm a fabric manufacturer so i mean i'm totally opposed to the burqa but even when you're making something man what a bad choice mm -hmm. the worst color possible mm -hmm. black attracts almost all the heat <laughs> that is possible on planet earth and then not even cotton polyester mm -hmm. yeah. that's like you know you must be really hating women to put them yeah. in a black polyester mm -hmm. costume that's all it is. It's a costume. That's all I it's call it. It's misogyny. It is hate of women. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so, so this question. So that very moment for the first time when you realize that, damn, I don't have to wear this anymore. So mm -hmm. what was that moment? Can you narrate that for me? That, that moment when you knew, oh, I don't have to do this anymore. You know, I, I quite often get asked this question and it's, it's, I'm sorry to disappoint that it wasn't that, it wasn't a moment. Like, you know, I can't describe it as like this elation of like this freedom. It was so slow and it was so seeped in fear. Like taking off the niqab was a step-by-step -step process too, right? First I took off my gloves. So I went out with just my hands showing. You know, and then it was like, I had a friend who she wore hijab, but she was like encouraging me to, to show my face. She's like encouraging me to take, take off the niqab. 
And I was scared to do that. I was nervous to do that. I was, in Islam, they teach you like, the more you cover, the better of a person you are. The less you cover, the worse of a person you are. And so I felt like I was going backwards as a person, as my morality or my humanity or my identity. Like it's very personal. It's not just a piece of cloth. It really feels like you are, um, you know, like you're going backwards as a person. You are devolving. And that's actually the words that they use. You know, they say like, oh, animals don't cover themselves. Animals are naked. And so every time you take off clothes, you're becoming closer and closer to animals. And the more and more you cover yourself, the more enlightened you are. This is only for women, by the way. <laughs> men apparently, yeah, men don't get to be enlightened. Men, uh, men always get to show their face and hands and whatever. Yasmin, you should remember, Islam is the first feminist religion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, there's certain statements that just got said and they just permeate in society. And it's like nobody stops to think about how incredibly Orwellian it is that you keep repeating this trope. Like Islam is a religion of peace. Really? Really, you're gonna say that? Like, do you never pay attention? Did you see the, the 50 people that were just killed in Mozambique? They weren't just killed. They were beheaded and cut up in pieces in a football field. Did you not read about that? Did you not read about the 35 students in Afghanistan, university students that were just gunned down? Maybe you heard about the teacher in France that just got his head removed or the, the woman that was praying in a church in France that was also beheaded. Like you didn't hear about 9-11, you didn't hear about Charlie Hebdo, you didn't hear about the Pulse nightclub shootings. You didn't, you know what I mean? Like, of course I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. They know this, they know the global terrorism that Islam is inspiring. And before every single one of those deaths, what do they say? Allahu Akbar. And you're going to tell me that Islam is a religion of peace? Like when you say Islam is a religion of peace, that's on you. You know what I mean? Like you now look like the idiot. The people that say that are basically announcing to the world, I am a complete moron and I cannot tell the difference between a religion that encourages its adherence to be peaceful versus a religion that encourages its adherence to commit terrorism. You know, it's not even on the, the Muslims that have, that are indoctrinated with this and they actually believe these things because they were told these things from childhood and they are so too scared to think otherwise because they're brainwashed. It's on the liberal, open-minded people who come from free societies that are going to repeat this trope as if they are functionally, you know, mentally, their, 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 their mental facilities are, you know, I'm trying to... <laughs> 
I'm trying to not swear right now. I'm trying to find like a polite way of saying, you know, they're fucking deranged. Like, is there, is there something wrong with your brain that you're going to repeat Islam as a religion of peace or Islam is the most feminist religion? You, how do you say that? Look at the Islamic countries and look at how women are treated there. Consider even the most basic rights of women. These are things that are not, they're unheard of in the Western world. A woman in Iran was arrest, arrested because she was riding a bike without a hijab on. She got arrested. Those are two crimes. Riding a bike is a crime in Iran and not wearing hijab is a crime in Iran. People don't even think of those as freedoms. That's just normal life everywhere in the world. Okay. In, in Afghanistan, women just won this huge push this huge campaign for their names to be on their birth certificates because they were always considered daughter of and then mother of. They never got to be an individual. In Egypt, where my family is from, it's rude to say your mother's name. It's like, it's aura. It's like, it's, it's like this shameful thing to say a woman's name. Even her name is shameful. And they come and tell me this is the most feminist religion. There is nothing more misogynist that you could possibly imagine than that tool of victim blaming, that tool of slut shaming, that tool of misogyny, that tool of rape culture called hijab. And you're going to tell me Islam is the most feminist religion? Like I, I just, it, it just, it, it defies all logic. And that's why the subtitle of my book is how Western liberals empower radical Islam. Now, I know that the same thing happens in India as well. So it's just, you know, how the left in general, how they empower radical Islam by pretending that they're stupid. You know, you can recognize it. You can recognize it when it's coming from a, a Christian context or a Hindu context. You understand it. Oh, that's misogyny. When it comes from a Muslim context, the exact same thing is feminism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually very annoying. And, and believe it or not, when, when I was living there, I don't think so. I think the average Westerner just did not have any idea about Islam, to be very honest. Mm -hmm. Everything changed. Uh, I don't know. Interestingly, when I used to live in Canada, 9-11 had just happened then. And I was there and, and I saw the Western world change. So there was a change which I don't like. It, so it's very interesting. And it I don't know what it is with the left. You know, I'm a pretty liberal guy. I think I'm socially liberal on all counts. Uh, and and I've, I'm a fierce critic of the lack of freedom of expression in India. And and I don't get it. I mean, do these Westerners have a death wish? Yes, man. That's I the mean, ultimate what, question, yeah. What are they doing? I mean, do, so I'll give you an example recently, right? So the beheading happens in France and good on Macron, right? He stood up and he said, you know what? F you, I'm going to push back. This is not our way of life. Our way of life is about freedom and, you know, free speech and all that good stuff. And then you have Mr. People Kind. Uh, that's all I call it, Mr. People Kind. And not even mankind, it's people kind now. I don't know what the hell is. And what's with him and Indian dancers? Can you tell him to stop doing Bhangra? Because okay, it's, very, it's irritating. Because he is a bigot. 
the way his his pangra dancing is no different than his blackface. It's because he considers all others to be like this fetish for him because as a drama teacher to just dress up in like somebody from a different culture or from a different ethnicity. He thinks of them as like little toys. It's this is it's just um it's bigotry. It's it's the elitist, liberal, fancy, nouveau racist is what it is. I mean, he you should it's pathetic. Every single any kind of you know celebration that's going on, you know, when he goes to like Chinese New Year, he dresses up like he's from China. And he goes and he pats the Chinese people on their head and he's like, Gung Hee Fat Choi, you know, and he just, he he acts like he's, a, he's embarrassing. He does like the old school Orientalism, the, the, the noble native, you know, the noble savage. That's where he is, that he's still in that kind of mindset. And um, yeah, people kind. He he judges people. He tells people not to be racist when he's the biggest racist possible. And he was so embarrassing with his response to this France issue. So embarrassing. Him and the leader of Turkey and the leader of Pakistan were the only three world leaders who didn't stand in support of France. Like how embarrassing that your country is standing there with Pakistan and Turkey. Yeah, but I don't get it. What went wrong with Canada and Canadian politics? It's like most people don't understand Canadian politics. It's not like the conservative party in Canada. And actually, uh, another thing that people don't realize is that the conservatives in Canada are not actually like the conservatives in America. Not the conservative party yeah, yeah, not even close. They're not like the conservatives in America. Conservative party in Canada, most people don't realize, is the most pro-immigration party that mm -hmm. you can have. Like Harper was always pro-immigration. And and if, you know, if you looked at voting patterns and stuff, like a lot of immigrants, like new immigrants, they vote conservative. And it's, it's what the hell has gone wrong in the body politic of Canada that you have, and, and I don't know how to say, because like I'm socially liberal. I can't vote for the left. I just can't. I can't. I can't look at that man dancing hideously and doing all the things he does and then saying that freedom of speech has limits. Since when did free speech have limits? And if free speech has limits, why is it only with Islam? Then why not with Jesus or why not with Ram or uh, or Lakshman or uh, or let's say, you know, Yahweh, the Jewish God? What happens mm -hmm. to the free speech has limits there? It, uh, or... Or, or is this a classic case where we are giving in basically to the heckler's veto, where you know there is a set of people who are going to come and use violence as a tool of negotiation? So is Justin Trudeau basically telling other communities that if you want me to take you seriously, become violent? I mean, that's, that's, that's a very logical conclusion. Yeah, that seems to be, you know... Basically, yeah, he's like, I'm capitulating to the bullies. So if you want me to pander to you, then uh, then you've got to make me, you know, submit via fear. But um, yeah, I spoke in the in the House of Commons in Ottawa against M103, which was the anti the Islamophobia bill. 
And it was exactly that. It was a, a bill that they want to try and make it illegal to criticize Islam, which is exactly the opposite of free expression and free speech and one of the cornerstones of Western civilization. It, it, it's pretty shocking that that bill would even try to get passed. But what's even more shocking is that it was unanimously passed by the Liberal Party. Unanimous. So you can't even say that Justin Trudeau is a complete moron all by himself because he has an army of morons behind him. And you're right that Canada has changed because if you look back to even you know his father, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, never spoke like this. You know, he was he was a huge supporter of free expression and, you know, freedom of thought and freedom of, of, you know, of religion and from religion. And he was all about freedom and he understood how important that was as a as a as a part of being Canadian and a part as part of Canada. But, uh, you know, Trudeau, I think in many ways is an empty head and an empty suit and he'll just do, he's just a politician and he'll just do whatever his constituents want him to do and he'll say whatever his constituents want him to say. So he's a symptom of the problem that we have in Canada, which is, as you described, we have all left-wing parties and even our, our conservative government is more to the left of even Bernie Sanders. So when we talk about our conservative party, it's, it's in no way comparison to the, uh, to the American conservative party. But the problem with going so left like that is the horseshoe theory. When you go so far left, you're gonna find yourself in this authoritarian place, which is not too different from the far right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where things have gone, unfortunately, in Canada. Yeah, and that's what worries me the most, that someone who's a lover of, uh, you know, liberty, who, I always thought that it doesn't matter if you're left or center or right or center. At the end of the day, if you're in this camp, whether left or center, I mean, what would our disagreement be on? Like, uh, how much capitalism is good? how much of public schooling is good, how much of uh, public health care is good. That's the debate on. I can live with that. But if the debate shifts from that to whether I can criticize a religious mm -hmm. idea is when I get scared because people don't realize it. I live in a country where that is a reality. Every single time I host discussions like this, like I, I, I sometimes I have to tell my guests before I go online, it's like there are certain areas that you don't cross because you're living in the West. I live in India. We have an active blasphemy law. We do. And they can charge me anytime they want. And this is what worries me. I mean, what's so special about this that you always give in to bad ideas for what? For a few votes? Then, then where is the counter to that? My my worry is that if this is such a bad idea, there has to be a counter vote. Do you see a counter vote coming up in a country like Canada? Not currently. Not at all. It's um, 
it's quite scary because, you know, I, I just don't know what direction things are going to go right now. I don't know what it's going to take. So in France, you mentioned Macron has changed his tune and he's now, you know, he's, he's shutting down Islamist mosques. He's deporting people with uh, backgrounds in terrorism. He's deploying thousands more soldiers at his borders. He's reacting responsibly. But how much blood had to flow before he did that? Like, you know, they turned a blind eye in France for a very long time to many, many, many murders of innocent people because of Islamic terrorism. And it took them a very long time before they finally said, okay, okay, I guess we'll address this issue, you know? And so is that the only route out of this? Is that the only way? We're going to continue to capitulate, 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 capitulate until we find ourselves swimming in pools of the blood of innocent people. And then we say, oh, okay, now it's finally time to fight back. I don't, I, you know, I really hope that that's not the way it's going to go. But so far, that's the way it's been going. Yeah, that's what worries me. So I guess this answers a couple of questions people had asked because I was just looking at the folks in the live chat. So they did ask the Yasmin in the light of what's going on in France regarding Islam. How high is the possibility of such accidents occurring in Canada? I don't know. I mean, if you ask me, uh, pretty high. If uh, And, you know, one thing, Yasmin, my observation is when you look at the pantheon of activism uh, inside the Muslim community, so... It's actually a lot of activists in, in mm -hmm. Canada. Obviously, you're there. Then you have Rahil Raza. Then you have Irshad Manji. There's Tariq Fatah. There's uh, Ali Amjad Rizvi. There's uh, Armin, too. I know Armin has been getting a lot of shit from the Hindus these days. But, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I disagree with many things Armin does. But at the end of the day, you know, Armin has, has been also working against a lot of these things. And there are many other Canadian activists, too. In fact, the irony is uh, most of the activists when it comes to Islam and Islamism, are actually Canadian. I hardly see any uh, other than Ayan, I think, uh, in America. And that too, Ayan had to move to America because she was no longer safe in Europe. So uh, so what's so special about Canada, Yasmin? All of you guys seem to be coming up, uh, you know, the activism in Canada is quite alive. And all of y'all are obviously not even in sync when it comes to uh, social or political ideology you seem to be all over the place but it's thriving so so in that sense isn't it good that Canada does have a space for that kind of activism too it does have that kind of space and that's exactly why m103 was really scary was because they were threatening to take that space away from us they're threatening to make us being able to speak out against this ideology they wanted to make that illegal and um, Ali and I were two people that spoke in the House of Commons against that. And I know that Rahil Raza and Tariq Fatah have also spoken in the past against Islamism. It has infiltrated our government in many ways, not just our liberal government, but our conservative government as well. We have Islamists all over our political parties. And um, I think that 
like you said at the beginning of this conversation, most Canadians are not paying attention or they're not aware. But people like us who are coming from those societies, you know, everybody that you mentioned, except for me, wasn't born in Canada, right? They were all born in, in, in Muslim majority countries. And so they can recognize right away that there is a, a dangerous trajectory happening here. We're on a dangerous trajectory. And the, you know, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that we are considered the outcasts, right? We are considered the people that are um, silenced and hated and we're not, we're not the mainstream voices. So, you know, Canadians, I think, are very open-minded and rational people. But as Richard Dawkins once said, sometimes you can be so open-minded that your brain falls out. And I think that that describes my people. Yeah, it's the classic Popper's paradox, right? So how long do you tolerate, I mean, tolerance. the paradox of tolerance? Yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I can vouch for it. I mean someone who considers Canada and America to be his second home, especially I'm very attached to that part of the world. I mean, I have families there. So yeah, I, that's something I've noticed in Canada that this, this blind spot, and I love the term Gatsad's use. He's, you know, he calls it ostrich parasitic syndrome. It's literally- Another it's just, Canadian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all these guys are Canadians. There's something yeah. happening there. <laughs> all of them are Canadians. And, and it's just, I don't know. It's weird. So, so let's take a few questions now. People have asked a lot of questions. Uh, so I guess uh, something like this is that, do you think religious fear, so this is Vipul. Vipul has asked you this question that do you think re religious fear, whether it comes to hell or the whole hijab thing, it really stops societies from innovating? What, what's been your experience? Uh, well, it certainly does when that religious fear is in the law enforcement. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I mentioned that in 15 Muslim majority countries, they will execute you for leaving the religion. So uh, if you say, I don't want to, if I want to denounce Islam, I don't believe in Islam anymore. That's, you know, grounds for you to be not just imprisoned, but executed. In other countries, you would be arrested under blasphemy laws. Other countries, they may not imprison you or kill you, but they will take away your civil liberties. You know, like in, in Jordan, for example, then all of a sudden you're no longer considered a citizen. So that means you lose your citizenship. You, if you're married, that marriage is no longer uh, you know, recognized by the state, your children are no longer yours. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's massive, the, it, the law enforcement, the government, that fear really keeps people in line. In Egypt, you could be thrown into an insane asylum if you say you don't believe in a law anymore. So there's, there's, people are afraid of a lot of different things in a lot of different countries. So they don't have the freedom to say, they don't have the freedom to think. They, they, they're only told this is what you have to think. And if you think anything else, there will be consequences. So you don't even bother trying to open your mind and think in different directions because the price for doing that is just too high. And so you just, 
you stay in, in whatever circumstances you're in. And in fact, Yusuf Qaradawi, who is a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, said once, the reason why we have so many Muslims today is because of the apostasy laws. If we remove the laws that say we will execute people for leaving Islam, then we won't have so many Muslims. They know that they are keeping people in line with fear. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're, yeah, they're actually using it as a, as a, as a useful tool to control people. Yeah. These kinds of things, when I listen to things like this, like I don't even have a comeback to this (laughs) other than start laughing and banging my head on the wall. It's like, I don't have a comeback to this. It's, it's an insult to my intelligence. I was like, how do I respond to this? I mean, Mm -hmm. It's just yeah. this is crazy. But to continue this, and this is actually a perfect follow-up question. So Sriram has asked you this question that, is there a chance for countries like Afghanistan to become a free society? What should the world uh, do for rights of women over there? Because you have an organization and you're so involved in these things. So, so how do you think countries like Afghanistan... Uh, look, India, uh, one thing I have to give up, I'm not saying India is perfect. I think India has a lot of problems across communities, but... India does have a system where women can fight, women can come Mm -hmm. up, women can ask for some things. I'm not saying we're not at the level of the West is today, but I have a lot of hope for India. But but when it comes to Pakistan, when it comes to Afghanistan, you're an activist. Yeah, you're Mm -hmm. an activist. So how how would your organization deal with, say, a female in Afghanistan if she was to contact you guys or something of that sort? Yeah, so the thing that it is important to remember is Afghanistan is full of bright women and men, but it used to be a, a you know a country that was progressing, that secularism was, you know, a goal. Like they they were they used to have, you know, women went to school, there there were cinemas, it was not like the Taliban were not always in control there. They weren't always, people weren't always scared the way they are today. And those people still exist. I guess I'm going to make the parallel with Iran. You know, the Iranian people, again, smart, you know, incredibly bright, full of, you know, these minds that are so rich and diverse with, you know, art and poetry and music, et cetera, et cetera. But they are being stifled by their Islamic regime. And so when you ask me if I think that a country like Afghanistan will be able to um, come out from this darkness, I think that it can I think that there is a possibility because I believe in the people. I believe in the Afghani people and I know that they are following these laws mostly out of fear. I mean, people, you know, I had an Afghani student that was telling me about how he was kidnapped by the Taliban and he was in a room for two weeks by himself in complete darkness to the point that today even he can't shut the door of his bedroom because he can't be in a room by himself with the door closed. You know, if he's in a classroom or, or something with other people, he's okay. But in a room by himself, he can't shut the door. 
So, you know, he's traumatized for the rest of his life because of something that happened for two weeks of his life. And so, of course, the people are going to get in line. Of course, people are going to be scared. You know, we just talked about in Afghanistan, the students that were just murdered in their university. And it's not the first time that that happened. And uh, so the, the answer to that question is, I believe that people can be, they can flourish if they're given the opportunity. So the, 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 the thing that is forcing them into submission is so over, is like, it's so repressive right now that I can't see them being able to fight past it unless that thing is removed first. So again, like if we look at Iran, it's the Islamic regime. Iranian people are, you know, most of them are secular. Most of them are, are you know, they're, they're, they're incredibly bright people, but they have this dark cloud of the Islamic regime forcing them to, you know, wear hijab and not ride bikes and pray five times a day and all of the, the rules of the, of the Islamic regime. And that's true in many Muslim majority countries. The governments, there needs to be a separation of, of mosque and state, basically. And if you let Muslim people decide, do you want your freedom or do you want Sharia? <laughs> like most rational, normal human beings are going to choose freedom. Nobody wants the Sharia is not fun. It's a horrible, atrocious, difficult, vicious thing to live under. And people wouldn't be living under it if, if they were given the choice. Yeah, Unless so somebody people just, that want to join ISIS, of course. So, 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 back bang. So, I don't know if you're aware of this whole uh, controversy recently with um, Rukmini Kalimachi and uh, Kalimaki, and uh, she had this uh, whole podcast and she wrote a series of articles on ISIS. And I guess now she's canceled. They found some issues with her. Are you aware of uh, this whole I thing? didn't know she'd been canceled. I mean, I know her, but I wasn't aware of this controversy. Yeah, so, so some, they found something wrong with her work and you know how it is, right? You know, everybody's like, you're canceled. She's usually so careful. What did they find? I don't know. I'm, I'm not aware of it, but somebody yeah. asked, I was like, maybe you're aware of it. Uh, no, I hadn't heard about this. She's always very, very careful with, uh, you know, with how she words everything that she says. So, you know, I'm surprised. But that's what happens, right? Like, People that used to be supporting this cancel culture that were the cancelers are now finding themselves being canceled, right? J.K. Rowling being one of one of the prime examples of that. You know, um, Barry Weiss from the New York Times, like lots of people that were part of the cancel culture, part of that judgmental, you know, pointing your finger down at the lesser thans for the way that they speak and that the way they're not using the right vocabulary in the right times are finding that this snake is now, you know, coming to eat them as well, because that's what it does. It, it eats itself, you know, in, in America, you've got people on the far left, you know, spray painting, fuck Biden, and they hate the Democratic Party. It's 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 like Shia Sunnis, you know. They're, you're you're never gonna be Muslim enough. Somebody's always gonna kill you for not being Muslim enough. 
there's always it's just constantly moving. It's a moving target, and um, yeah, that that's yeah. something about uh, you know an entire culture based on purity and pollution, and it, it's. And this is very interesting that you you know mentioned about the far left and this dries off. I don't have any other word to say. I don't know. Correct me if my analysis is wrong. I just think it's a new religion. It's very yeah. Abrahamic, by the way. Totally agree, 100%. Yeah. It's just, I always say this, that uh, vocism is Abrahamism just without the divinity. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they, they removed the divinity and then they were like, okay, we'll do the same thing again that we have been doing for so many years. We'll just replace it somewhere. But and they're okay, the fundamentalists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they can't take any deviation. And it's funny enough, it was Hillary Clinton who had once said, you know, you cannot keep snakes in your own backyard and not expect them to bite you back. And well, you know, that's something the left has to figure out. I mean, I'm someone I'm very open about it. Uh, I am not in the left. Uh, I'm someone from the non left. I don't use the word right wing because I'm all over the place ideologically. So I just like to be left alone. That's all I say. I tell people just leave me alone and I'm happy. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a, a classical liberal, you know, live and let live. That's where yeah. you belong. But, you know, all my whole life, I thought I was on the left. My whole life, you know, up until people on the left start praising China and, you know, <laughs> Chavez and North Korea. And then I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> what happened? Because I didn't move. But but it seems like everybody started moving further to the left. Where now you know we're, we're people are publicly saying I'm a communist. Like I heard people, I'm like, how are you saying that? It's to me, it's like saying I'm a Nazi. You know what I mean? Like you just you can't. How are you voicing this in a, in in public? How are you not ashamed? But um, you know. That's the left now. It has it has moved so far left that it is now socially acceptable to to praise communism and to publicly admit that you believe in it. All right. So a couple of uh, questions now because uh, I want to talk to you about this whole ex-Muslim. Uh, mm. I'll be very honest. Uh, I never was in. I found the whole terminology very weird, to be very honest. Again, it stems from my experience as a Hindu because I still call myself a Hindu. I might be a disbeliever, but I'm a Hindu. And uh, and uh, I found this, this whole ex-Muslim. I mean, why would you want to associate it with something that you were? Okay. I mean, I would always tell them, okay, get over it kind of a thing. You know, you were, I mean, I don't say I'm an ex-non-vegetarian. Uh, you know where, what I'm coming uh, where I'm coming from, but then my friends would say, "You don't go through the trauma that we went through," and uh, they would come back to me and say, "Right, uh, uh, you know, that's where our whole worldview comes from. Uh, Islam is different." So tell me where I'm where I'm going wrong. Like I can never relate to the ex-Muslim tag at a at an intellectual level. Well, I think that the reason why you can't relate to it is like your friend said to you is it's it's not your experience. So um, as a person from a Hindu background, I think it's more like being Jewish in that exactly the story you told me of when you told your mother that you don't believe in the gods anymore. She said, okay, anyway, eat your breakfast. That's exactly the same story one of my friends told me about when she told her mom 
she's Jewish. When she told her mom that she didn't believe, her mom said, so who believes? <laughs> you know, like, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, go, go get ready for school. It doesn't matter because you're still accepted as a part and you're still accepted in the community. She's still accepted as a Jewish person. You're still accepted as a Hindu person. With Muslims, it's not the same. I can't tell my family I don't believe in Allah and they'll say, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, it matters, right? You will be, if you're lucky, you'll only be disowned for it, but it could get a lot worse. You're considered a, a, a traitor. You're considered um, a non-believer is like almost, it's like subhuman, you know? So in Islam, like one way of just uh, illustrating for you the subhumanness of a, of a non-believer is in Islam, if you um, you can take non-Muslim women as sex slaves, but you can never take a Muslim woman as a sex slave. Same with men. You can take men, non-Muslim men as your slaves. A Muslim man can never be a slave. So they're given like a, yeah. So they're given like a, a a supremacy over other people. Um, so when you say, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore, you are not choosing to leave the community or to no longer be part of your family. That choice is being made for you. You don't have the option of being both. And so I guess it's a lot like if you were a heroin addict or if you were an alcoholic, you have a shared trauma with other people that used to be heroin addicts or that used to be alcoholics. And so now that you have been outcast, because that's what happens, we're excommunicated and we're by ourselves floating with no family, no friends, no community, no support. And in fact, we're hated and hunted by the people that used to give us that love and support, people that used to be our, our community and our tribe. So when you're out there all alone, because we're humans and we're social animals, you want a support system. And so when we call ourselves ex-Muslims, we're reaching out to each other that are out in the barren desert by ourselves without any support. And we're saying here, I understand. I'm here too. I've also been through that. I've also been, you know, discarded by my family and by people that I love and the people that I thought loved me, not knowing that it was very conditional on me continuing to love Allah and his prophet. And so that's why it's really important. We are alone. And so we're trying to find a support system and by using the word ex-Muslim, it's kind of like a beacon saying, here we are. And, you know, we're not a cohesive, supportive, loving community um, because we are all um, dissidents. We're all free thinkers. We're all independent thinkers. So we, the reason why we left Islam was because we had that inner fight in each one of us is so fiercely independent that we were willing 
or that we accepted losing our community and our family and our friends. And in some cases, you know, your jobs and you have to move countries and yada, 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 fearing your life. It's a huge thing to make that decision. So we're all very fiercely independent people. And so you can just imagine a bunch of fiercely independent people do not create a nice new little tribe. So um, there's, you know, it's called the ex-Muslim community just because it's a way of describing all of these people that have this shared trauma that they can relate to. But we ourselves are not a cohesive group in, in any way. There's nothing that we all believe in or that we all agree on. It's just that we all have a shared trauma. So again, it's like a bunch of heroin addicts. If you have a bunch of heroin addicts, they are now today, they're clean. And if they all get together in a room, you're, you're probably not gonna be able to find one thing that they all have in common other than the fact that they have all overcome this trauma. So they, it's a shared misery basically that comes yes, with It's like the Alcohol Anonymous for, for you know, disbelievers amongst Muslims. Well, it's a way of us finding each other. So there are certain groups, because I'm not anonymous, obviously, a lot of ex-Muslims mm -hmm. are not anonymous, but um, but it's like, you can be an, an ex-alcoholic and not necessarily be a part of Al Alcoholics Anonymous, but you would still say, you know, I used to be an alcoholic. So what I, what I mean to say is, when you say I used to be a Muslim, it, it, is useful in explaining your position so that other people who have gone through the same experience so that you can identify each other. That's it. It doesn't mean that you're going to have anything in common. It just means that you had something in common. Yes. Yeah, so, so another question that Pritesh has asked you is that uh, he starts by, I apologize if this comes across as a personal question, but do you sometimes regret choosing this life of an ex-Muslim activist because of the scrutiny that you get and the almost negative response that you get from the media many times? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, quite often, I feel like y'all can fucking burn. I don't care. <laughs> I'm over it. I'm tired. You know, I try so hard to tell you and you don't want to listen. So whatever, you know, in it, it, there's this, this like a saying that we have in Arabic, like, you know, kind of like eat. You, if you want to eat this, eat it, eat it until you until you're full, you know, and you want this have it. I'm done. So, yes, I reach that point all the time. And if I hadn't started my organization and if I hadn't written my book and if I didn't have uh, so many people sort of uh, reaching out to me because they can't trust anybody else and they're too scared to talk to anybody else. So if I didn't already put myself in that position, I would, I would have walked away so many times. But now I feel like I have this responsibility where it's too late, I can't walk away. Um, and more than anything, that's probably the, the biggest thing that keeps me going is, is getting messages from people in Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, everywhere where they say, you know, I'm married and I have three children and I can't tell my spouse 
about how I'm feeling. I can't tell my friend, I can't tell my doctor, I can't tell my mother, I can't tell anybody, but I know I can trust you. And so, you know, that goes back to your question of why do you identify as an ex-Muslim? Well, it's exactly for that, is I'm like this light saying, I'm over here if you need someone to talk to who understands what you're going through, then, you know, you can contact me. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I get it. So so one last question, and I want to connect it to a question somebody's asked in the live chat too. So, and I ask this question to everybody who's left Islam and uh, I always state my position first so that it's only fair that I state my personal position first. Like I uh, personally at a fundamental, logical, intellectual level support uh, Islamic reform. I, I always say this, that uh, the way religions get reformed, uh, uh, I'm leaving Hinduism aside because it's structured differently when it comes to Abrahamic religions. I'm just using Abrahamic religions as the, as the fundamental bending block here that the Bible did not change. The interpretation of the Bible changed. Now somebody might come back and say, oh, how do you change Surah Nisa for the 36 or 34, whatever, the wife beating verse. I'm like, well, they'll find a way out. I don't know. Or they'll just avoid it, whatever. But uh, I see a lot of resistance when I talk to Muslim disbelievers that, oh, Islamic reform is a sham. Islamic reform is this. Islamic reform is that. And then I do see some ex-Muslims actually, or maybe Majid Nawaz, who considers himself to be a Muslim, actively working towards Islamic reform. And there's, there's a comment made by someone. They say that sometimes they feel like for normalizing, you know, a lot of things. And sometimes they, 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 I don't know, I've not observed this, but that's their observation. They say there is unconditional sexualization of women. Uh, I don't know, I've not noticed this uh, in the ex-Muslim community, but somebody has asked this question that there tends to be this unconditional uh, sexualization of women. But first of all, on the Islamic reform thing, do you at a fundamental level think Islam can be reformed or should be reformed? I don't think that the religion of Islam can be reformed. I think that Muslim people can choose to reform themselves as in they will cherry pick their religion and choose to follow certain aspects and ignore 90% of it. Um, so as opposed to Christianity where they had the Old Testament and then they actually had the New Testament, they got a new edition that said, okay, okay, ignore the other stuff here. This is the new book. Muslims will never get that because they're not an organized, there's no Pope, there's no, uh, like, uh, there's no Vatican, you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not structured in the same way. So, who nobody will ever th th this new edition of the Quran like it's not going to happen. But individual Muslims and I think given the choice, like I said earlier, of separate uh, earlier with separation of mosque and state, give Muslims the choice. Give Muslim women the choice. Like, do you want to wear niqab or do you want to wear whatever you want to wear? Of course, they're going to want to wear whatever they want to wear. Like, people aren't going to follow the edicts of Sharia unless they're forced to. You know, you have to think of, you know, how many gay people are living in these Muslim majority countries that are being told that they are immoral and that they should be killed for being gay. Give them the option 
Do you want to follow Sharia? Do you want to think of yourself as immoral that should be killed? Or do you want to, you know, love yourself and appreciate and value yourself for who you are? Of course, they're going to choose the, the latter. So I think that Muslim human beings are no different, whether they're Muslim, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. We all want very similar things. And um, personal autonomy, personal freedom, I think is a, is a basic thing that most humans want. And I think that Muslims will be, will choose that for themselves if they are able to. So Muslim reform, you mentioned Majid Nawaz, well, he's in the United Kingdom. So he's very lucky in that he can have that option. But if you're living in Saudi Arabia or you're living in, you know, Pakistan or whatever, you don't have that option. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But then but how do people work out? Like, I'll give you a story. So I remember being contacted a while ago by a blogger from Bangladesh. So mm. uh, he was like, I've run away and I've come to Kolkata, mm -hmm. India. And... Uh, I don't want to go back, but I'm on a tourist visa. Can you help me? I tried my best. I ran pillar to post, but just couldn't help him. And uh, he's gone back and he's he's fine as of now. But it, it, it does bother me. And believe me, I, I, I do. I till this day, I can't forgive myself that I could not successfully help that guy out or make sure he lived in India. But anyways, I don't think so. He would have been safe in India. I mean, look at the Sleema Nasreen. She can't go to Kolkata. She, she's a Bengali uh, atheist uh, from a Muslim background. Even in India, it's like the Indian government has told the Sleema that, okay, you can stay around Delhi. We can guarantee your security in Delhi in the surrounding area. But she's a native Bengali speaker. She can't stay in the Indian state of Bengal because the Bengali politics says... We need that 27% Muslim population to vote for us. So we will mm -hmm. not protect one Taslima Nasreen. Mm -hmm. In such a scenario, well, in India, um, I always say this. People don't like it when I say this. I always say demography is destiny. And when I say demography is destiny, I don't mean it in a religious way. I mean it in the sense of ideas. Your mm -hmm. destiny is decided by the kind of ideas that are held by X number of people. So yeah. if the majority holds liberal values, the society is going to be liberal. Yep. If the majority goes into this ultra-religious or ultra-neo-vocist ideology, society is going to collapse. Mm -hmm. Such a scenario. Now, you could be in Canada. I could be in Mumbai, India. How do we make sure that the demography of people holding good ideas is always there? Well, the thing is, is the... The biggest problem is that in 50 Muslim majority countries, it's in the government, it's in the law enforcement. So as long as, if you're talking about in a country like the UK or Canada or even India to a certain extent, like there are, there, you're allowed your freedoms, you're allowed to, think outside the box. There isn't going to be, you're not going to be risking your life to do that. Obviously, you know, someone like Tasleem Nasreen is, but you know what I mean? In a general sense, you there's that option for you. 
So in, in a country where that isn't an option for you, then it's not going to happen. You know, if, if all of the education and media and, you know, everything is giving you one perspective, then it's going to be very, very hard to have liberal minded free thinkers come out of that society. Yeah. And one last question before I let uh, let you go. How do we deal with, and it, it bothers me on a daily basis. I, I don't know how to put it. I have Muslims in my own family. I actually have Muslims in my family and they did not convert or anything. This is very interesting because if a Hindu marries into a Muslim family, the equation changes. But if a Muslim marries into a Hindu family, especially a girl, Hindus don't care. You can be Muslim, right? But I don't know. There's something in the Muslim psyche that if you come into my zone, uh, you are going to convert. It's, exactly. it's very annoying. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to be part of the discourse that normalizes bigotry against the average Muslim. I, I try to be ultra cautious about it. I don't know. I don't have to be ultra cautious about it when it comes to Hindus or Christians or anybody else. But it's, it's like this thing ingrained in my brain by default that every time I discuss Islam with anybody, I'll have to make sure that I kind of present the question of, but I'm not anti-Muslim, guys. I genuinely believe that we should not be anti-Muslim. But I do feel somewhere down the line, and, and, and let me be very honest, even in the Hindu discourse in India, there is a lot of anti-Muslim bigotry, which I hate which I hate and I oppose. And that's why I'm called a monkey balancer. I don't know what the hell that is, but they call me that. That, oh, you try to please the Western liberals. I was like, I'm not trying to please anyone. I'm just trying to please my moral center that I just feel it's wrong. But how do we deal with this? There is genuine anti-Muslim bigotry too. How do we deal with that? There is always going to be genuine bigotry. There's going to be anti-black bigotry. There's going to be anti-women misogyny. There's going to be, you know, anti-Semitic bigotry. Those th That kind of hate from one group to another group is part of the human experience, unfortunately. So the way we fight it is the way we fight anything else, is just with... You fight bad ideas with better ideas. And, you know, that is definitely, you know, a concern, but it is not going to stop me from speaking out against the enormous amount of oppression that occurs in the name of Islam. I mean, I'm not just talking about terrorism, which always makes the headlines. I'm talking about young girls being forced into marriages, basically being forced into rape. You know, I'm talking about young girls getting their clitoris cut off with a razor. I'm, you know, the I'm talking about, you know, gay Muslim kids being told that they are subhuman and that they should be killed. The negativity that Islam causes people on a daily basis is something that we need to speak up against and um, 
I won't be silenced because there are some bigots out there. Of course, there are bigots out there. There will always be bigots out there. But that's not going to stop me from speaking up for people who, if I, if I were silenced by these bigots, then they're just going to continue to be victimized. Yeah, uh, I guess that that's the best answer. I mean, that's what I say all the time. I was like, look, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't support anti-Muslim bigotry. What do you want me to do? Like, put a poster on my forehead or something every day and just go around with a placard saying, I don't hate Muslims. I mean, it's never going to be enough. And mm -hmm. yeah, I kind of get you. If you start playing by that game, then why only with Muslims? Why don't I have to give this description that I don't hate Hindus all the time because mm -hmm. I kind of go after Hinduism on my podcast all the time, but I never have to give this disclaimer, by the way, when it comes to Hinduism or Hindus. But yeah, I guess mm -hmm. it's just, uh, and this is the beauty. Don't you think, Yasmin, that, you know, Muslims and Islamism in a way has captured both the podiums. They're the victim while they are the bully. Yes. I mean, when I was growing up, I used to call my mom the persecuted princess because I said somehow, somehow she makes herself the victim, but also superior in the same breath. And I was like, how do you do that? You always do that. You always make yourself the superior victim. And, you know, as I got older and I started to, to notice that this was actually a very common Muslim, you know, perspective. That's that's how a lot of them see themselves as superior, but also a victim. And then I saw that Christopher Hitchens wrote about this. Um, he has an article in Vice magazine where he talked about Muslims have this, uh, you know, this this trilogy, I guess, of um, most of uh, what is it? What did he say again? Now self self-grandeur, but then also self-victimhood. And then he added self-hate in there as well, which is also true, uh, or a trifecta, not a trilogy. So yes, it's a very, very, very common thing that is used all the time. And the victimhood is used as a tool to silence criticism of their religion. You know, it's a, it's a very successful tool, in fact. So when they when you try to criticize Islam, they'll say, oh, you're being Islamophobic. So then you'll bite your tongue and you won't criticize it. In fact, even criticizing, you know, Samuel Petit, who is the teacher who was beheaded by that 18-year-old refugee, even speaking out against that was considered Islamophobia. So, you know, it, it is just a, a, a weaponization of victimhood to, you know, it's, it's a continuation of bullying, really. It's just they're using that weapon um, to meet their, their, continue their goal. Yeah, it, they're obviously, at the end of the day, there are no good answers. So, Yasmin, I'm conscious of your time. So, before I let you go, so can you can you 
Can you tell us about something new coming up? Uh, are, is there any new book on the line or or what's the best way for people? Let's say there are you know people who are closeted ex-Muslims who are going to be watching this podcast right now or maybe later. What is the best way uh, to get in touch with you? Uh, so what would be that? Can you tell us that? Yeah, so um, about my book, it is, it's going to be translated by the Richard Dawkins Foundation into Urdu, Indonesian, Arabic, and Persian, and it will be available for free on their website next wow. year. Yeah, so that's really huge. So a lot of closeted ex-Muslims who don't speak English, um, who are live, you know, who speak any of those four languages will be able to, to read my book for free. So that's really great news. Um, and for anybody that's listening right now, if you want to get a hold of me, you can go to my website, yasminmohammed.com. They can contact me there. And I'm also on Twitter, but you know, I've got a lot of followers there. So I quite often don't see my messages. Um, so the best way to contact me is, is through my website. And I'm also on Facebook. Again, I never check my Facebook messages and I'm also on Instagram. So uh, even though I'm on social media, quite often people send me messages in social media. I just ignore those because most of them are things that I don't want to see. Um, so if you want to contact me, then uh, please do so through my website. All right. Perfect, guys. So I have left the address for Yasmin's website in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're going to watch this on YouTube or later on on the audio, whatever, SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever. you're going to go to the description. Yasmin's website is going to be there. I've also left her Twitter handle in, in case you guys want to do that. I insist buy her book. Anyways, Garuda Publications is going to come out with a book uh, very soon. So uh, Garuda, you guys know Garuda, Sankrant's running Garuda. So uh, buy the book, read it. It's a wonderful book. I've personally read it. In fact, I had read it a long time ago and I never got to inviting Yasmin. I finally got it done. So Yasmin, I wish you all the wealth and happiness in life. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I, I sincerely hope that, uh, you know, you, you, you keep on this movement that all of you guys have started in your own ways. I know all of you have disagreements even within the ex-Muslim community, but I, I wish nothing but happiness and success. And once again, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. All right, guys, you know the drill. Subscribe, like, share the video, comment on it. If you like what I'm doing, become a member on the YouTube channel or you can go and support me on Patreon. I try my best to bring a plethora of guests to you from ex-Muslims to scientists to, you know, whatever I want to talk about. So I'll see you guys next time with another interesting guest. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye. See you next time. <laughs>